Wow! 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 <laughs> oh my goodness! That was amazing. Hi, everybody. It's great to see you. Oh my goodness. Um, David Fletcher, our executive pastor, and I had a bet on how many people would come tonight, and I lost big time. Um, we want to welcome you, particularly if you are um, if you're somebody that isn't a huge fan of church, doesn't normally come to church. We're really glad you're here. Um, my name is Mike, by the way. I was molested when I was four years old. And uh, I didn't know it at the time. I have no memories of it. Uh, when I was in my 20s, my mom sat me down and said, hey, I want you to know something. Um, when you were four or five, you came home from being at a babysitter's house. She was 13. And you were really ashamed and crying about something that had happened. And it just took a long time for me to actually find out what took place. And um, you said that, you know, this girl had touched you and made you touch her. And, and uh, I had no memory of it. But I, I do remember being seven and starting to wake up way early, way early. And um, I would ask my dad really awkward questions. And my dad just wasn't prepared to answer awkward questions from a seven-year-old. I had puberty at 10, 11. And then it really got awkward because I stopped asking questions. I had just no clue what was happening. My dad, um, as I've said before, my dad was a single dad at the time. I was, I, my parents had divorced when I was nine. I was there when my mom, or excuse me, when my dad found out my mom was having an affair. And, um, and so my dad was just beyond traumatized by this. So here's his son growing armpit hair and wondering what in the world is going on. And so he bought me a Playboy magazine to look at. And uh, for those of you under 20, magazines are, are these bound, <laughs> glossy kind of things. And, and I don't in any way, shape, or form... Uh, condemn my dad for that, but uh, he, he handed it to him and he just said, this is what girls are like. And he walked out of the room. He just said, leave it here when you're done. And so I eagerly devoured it. Find out, I found out where he kept it because uh, he didn't throw it away. And um, thus began at my earliest age an impression of women and of sexuality that I still, if I'm not careful, wrestle with. And the church, my church, they made an attempt. When I was 13, I sat down with a very awkward person in our church that I didn't know. And it was part of being in the youth group and sitting in junior high, I guess. And he sat down with this pre-folded sheet and he showed me something called the biological hand grenade ladder. And, and what it was, was it was a ladder that had all the levels of intimacy on it. Starting with holding hands, and then kissing, and then French kissing, and then petting, which 
petting, and then, <laughs> and then heavy petting, which sounded even more horrible, <laughs> and, and going all the way. And, and he walked me through this thing in the most awkward, weird conversation I could ever imagine, talking about how the further you go up the, the ladder, the more explosive it is. And so you just don't ever get on the ladder at all, was the point. <laughs> And so, as a young man with raging hormones, I don't know how I would have made it in the internet age. Because back when I was growing up, pornography wasn't as available as it is today. The church didn't say anything. Never in a big service, never in a weekend gathering would you ever hear talk of sexuality. But instead, I had a one-on-one awkward conversation that consisted of, it's explosive, you could get hurt, thou shalt not. Which was not helpful. My experience in following Jesus has been that in His name, in the area of sexuality, we have done far more damage than we have done His work. And so tonight, we want to begin a conversation. And I want to just give us a couple of ground rules, I guess. It's going to be different than what we do as a community of faith on Sunday morning. It's going to be a bit more honest and unpolished and raw. But a couple of things I want you to know going in. My assumption is that the amount of pain and brokenness in this room, in these areas, is staggering. The women who have been raped or abused or molested, the boys that were abused and molested, teenagers that are far sexually active, the men and the women who can barely get through a week without multiple visits to porn sites. The marriages that are frigid. The relationships where you can't talk honestly about some of the most important things. The parents that have dropped the ball. The children who've refused to listen. Those of us who are attracted to members of the same sex and find no place to talk about those attractions and what they mean. If we were to take the time and catalog the disappointments, the heartbreak, the damage we have done to ourselves and to others in this area, we would be here for weeks. And in the face of that, the church moves politically, but not theologically. The church speaks judgmentally, but not prophetically. The church has spent less time creating an alternative culture than just lambasting the culture that exists. We can do better. Ground rules. Number one, no subject is off limits. Not one. If you are easily offended, this is not the place for you. You can ask 
any question. And if the scriptures don't directly answer, I'll do my best as one who's walked with Jesus just a little bit to give you some thoughts. My assumption is that there either are or will be people who will come who are not huge fans of Jesus, church, or Bible. I will do everything I can to make those people comfortable here. In other words, wacky questions, we'll answer them. Two women come in holding hands. Two dudes come in holding hands. I'm so glad you're here. Because we got folks sleeping together holding hands. We've got people inappropriately divorced here holding hands. Hey, this is a club of brokenness. Now what we won't do is we won't water anything down. I believe the scriptures speak. You don't have to believe the Bible's the word of God to hear the wisdom. I'm going to operate under that assumption, but you don't have to. My goal isn't to convince you or beat you over the head. My goal is to tell a different story than the story our culture tells. You be the judge. Which one is more beautiful and which one leads to freedom? I think it'll be really clear. I don't know how long we'll go. I don't know how many weeks this will be. You're going to hear from other voices. We've got folks in our church community who've been married 50, 60 years. I'd like to hear what they've learned. We've got folks that have turned tragedy through in sexual brokenness into something beautiful. And I want to hear from them. So I won't be the only voice. But tonight I'm just going to talk for 45 minutes, an hour or so. And then I invite you to text in questions. The reason we're not going to do the live Q&A is simply because there might be subjects that you'd be embarrassed asking. Usually the way this goes is, I have a friend who struggles with... (laughs) And we believe (laughs) that we all have friends who have those struggles, but this way you can skip the friend part and just ask what you're really thinking. All right? So we're going to leave our self-righteousness at the door. We're going to leave. We're going to create a safe place where everything is worthy of being talked about. If you have a story that you'd love to tell, would you let me know? Because I'd love to tell some stories. I'd love to see how some of this work. And I don't want always just the nice, cute Christian stories that, well, I was really bad, then I met Jesus, and now it's perfect. I love those stories, too. But sometimes we need stories that say, you know, I was really bad, I came to Jesus, and I still wrestled with being really bad. And what I found is that he loves me in my badness. And that set me free. So if you have a Bible, let's go to the book Song of Songs, chapter 1. If you don't know where it is, go to Isaiah and turn one book left. (laughs) If that doesn't clear it up, go to Ecclesiastes and turn right. After every time we meet you, and by the way, if you're here and you're over 60, you rock. (laughs) Right? You rock. No, I mean, I'm being real. I mean, last time I checked, you're still alive and kicking.
Solomon's Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 1. There are three characters in this book. She, these are creatively titled. She, he, and friends. Or maybe your Bible will have daughters of Jerusalem. And we'll meet them as we go. There have been various ways the book has been interpreted, and I'll show you why. Verse 1, chapter 1. Solomon's Song of Songs. She is speaking. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love, and the word love is the word dod. It means sexual love. It comes from a Hebrew word, root word that means to thrust, to push, to rock back and forth, to cradle, or to fondle. Is that a sexual word? Oh, I think perhaps it is. <laughs> So, for, I mean, this is in the Bible. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I made my wife memorize this. <laughs> Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name, speaking to the man, your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Into his chambers, the reference to the bridal chamber. Now, there have been different ways this has been interpreted. There was some objection to including a book like this in the Bible. Some of the Jewish rabbis said that anyone, any male under 30 was not allowed to read the Song of Solomon. Because of the graphic and very erotic imagery. Some of it's missed when it gets translated into English, but in Hebrew, it's very clear. And so there have been some over the course of the history of the book who have suggested that this is a picture of the way God and his people relate. Which is a bit odd for those of us in the 21st century. But the book is more than just an erotic book. It's a book about desire. You're just going to see exclamations over and over and over of this couple desiring each other. And to the Jewish mind, that passion was the passion we should have for God and his word. And so it was nothing to them to look at a book like this and say, this, this, this is what it should be like between God and his people. Passion, devotion, desire. Christians came along and said, no, no, this isn't really about God and Israel. It's about Jesus and his church. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5, a passage we'll look at. Where he says, human marriage, it's a picture of Jesus and his church. So there's some legitimacy to seeing the song in this way. Other people see the song as an extended allegory about the pursuit of wisdom. If you look in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is presented as a maiden and folly, living non-wisdom life is presented as an adulteress. So there's some thought that the book here really is speaking of 
the pursuit of wisdom and the desire for it. And there could be some credence to that. But brothers and sisters, minimally, the Song of Songs is a collection of love poetry about human sexuality. It may be those other things too, but it is so clear and it is only fitting that the Bible would tackle this topic with such a direct book. For us, we've grown up thinking about sexuality in all sorts of crazy ways. For the Jews, the rabbis commanded on the Sabbath day, married couples are to make love. Every single Sabbath day. Which, you know, is a bummer that it was only once a week, but you know, for some of us married couples, that's, that'd be phenomenal. <laughs> you know? And there was instruction. And, and, and the kids knew. The kids knew at some point during the Sabbath, mom and dad were going to say, go ahead and watch Barney. <laughs> we'll be in the back. Right? See, it was just assumed that parents talked to their children about this. It was just assumed. So, we open a book of the Bible, and there's not even an introduction. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your sexual love is more delightful than wine. Now, it's staggering, because as we'll see, the woman is the central figure in the Song of Songs. Contrary to much of the love poetry in the ancient Near East, the woman has the first word and the last word. She has the most words and the most beautiful words. The man is portrayed as just a dude saying, this is awesome. <laughs> but the woman, boy, you talk about... See, if the church speaks on sex, it's to dudes about lust. Very rarely is it to sisters about desire. And I love that the book begins with her. It ends with her. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Go to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to make a few obvious points tonight out of this. Hey, by the way, I think it's pretty cool that you've all shown up at 7 o'clock on a Sunday night to look at a 3,000-year-old love poem. That's pretty cool. Go to Genesis chapter 1. This is a poetic account too. And the writer is speaking about how things were created. Now, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, I'm just so... I'm a biology major, and this stuff is bunk, and I just don't buy it. Okay. Fine. This isn't a talk about evolution. It's a talk about sexuality. So just set that aside for a second and just listen. Take, take it at its own merits for a second and just see if it has anything to say. I just want you to know it's okay to be here and not buy everything. It's okay. But there's wisdom. And there's something very beautiful the writer gets at. In the beginning, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God, verse 3, very famously said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was 
Good. Verse 6. Let there be a vault. Not a bank vault, by the way. Between the waters to separate water from water. God called it sky and declared it to be? Verse 9. Let, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. God called it land and said it was? Verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. God made two great lights, the sun and the moon, and God declared them to be? Verse 20. Let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created great creatures of the sea and every living thing in the water. And God declared it to be? Verse 24. Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals and declared them to be? So it's tough to miss the cadence, right? It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. Being made of stuff is good. Being created is good. Now the rhythm breaks in verse 26. Then God said, let us, an interesting question is who is the us? Let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness. So that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, we've not read anything about being made in God's image, correct? This is the first time. It was good, 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 it was good. Let us make mankind in our image. Everything else was made according to its own kind. Humanity is made according to God's kind. Now, that doesn't mean we're God, and it certainly doesn't mean we'll become God. But it means in some faint echo human beings are stamped with the image of God an image in the first century the image excuse me in the ancient near east was a way of expressing that human beings embodied parts of God not literally but in the way that they were made and embodied freedom embodied rationality conversation they they embodied bits of what God was like They weren't gods. They weren't going to become gods. But I want you to see that the rhythm, the cadence, God said, and then it was, and then it was good. God said, and it was, and it was good. That gets interrupted between animals and human beings. Animals aren't made in the image of God. Human beings are. Therefore, I know, and this this is such a profound point. Don't miss it. Human beings are not animals. Shocking, I know. I know, I drove all the way over for that point. (laughs) But think about it. The Bible is very, very clear to differentiate that yes, human beings are created, and yes, animals are created, and they're created from the same sort of stuff, but yet human beings are made in the image of God, and animals aren't. We don't ever find animals reflecting on the meaning of life. Animals making hard ethical decisions. We don't reflect, we don't ever see animals wrestling with why there's so much suffering in the world. Or how could God exist? I mean, we don't ever see animals having sort of any spiritual sort of awareness. What we see instead is that animals 
are slaves to their urges, right? We even have a phrase for animals during their mating season. They are in heat. And the idea of the animal kingdom is they simply are driven by their biology. Very simply. It's, they know it's mating season. They all go to the same place. They do their little ritual. And there you go. Cause and effect. End of story. There's no candlelit dinners. You know? And, and as much as we try to draw analogs and parallels between sex in the animal kingdom and sex among humanity, it just, no matter how far you take it, it just doesn't work. Theologically, we say, well, that's because human beings are much different than animals. They have something that animals don't have. Flip over to Psalm chapter 8. We'll come back to let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth in just a moment. Go to Psalm chapter 8. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't have any original thoughts. So, I always just feel the need to say that because I read a lot, I study a lot, I listen a lot, and the stuff that God uses in me, I share with you. And so I can't give credit to every source or, you know, every author. And so just know, if you ever hear or read someone else saying the exact same thing I've said, and that person is really a lot smarter than me, and you're tempted to think, man, they stole that from Mike. Probably not. I mean, I I tried to have original thoughts, and then I read C.S. Lewis and realized all the good thoughts are taken. You know? So all I have is original packaging. That's all I got. I'm in marketing. Psalm chapter 8. Notice this. The writer says to God, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is mankind? And again, I know it's an old, kind of an older way of saying it, but he just means humanity. What is humanity? That you are mindful of them. Human beings, that you care for them. In other words, human beings are the only ones that sit and reflect and go, my goodness, the universe is so big. We were created to rule over the animal kingdom, not be a part of them. And rule over the animal kingdom doesn't mean kill them to extinction, strip mine the planet. It means to caretake, to protect, to steward. The Bible opens with a very profound point. There is a difference between being human and being an animal. In other words, human beings aren't in heat the way that animals are. Human beings aren't enslaved to their desires, the way the animals are. And then notice, in the same passage, Psalm chapter 8, we read about another class of beings. You, God, have made them, human beings, a little lower than the angels, and crowned them with glory and honor. So, angels, we read about angels, different than human beings, and different than animals. Would you agree? So, in Genesis chapter 1, it is good, 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 boom. 
Let us make humanity in our image different than how God made the animals. Animals don't have this spiritual awareness. And then we get to Psalm chapter 8, where you have human beings, and they're compared to angels, a different class altogether of beings. Now let's just do a quick word on angels. Go to Job, flip over to the left, go to Job 38. Job spends a lot of time asking God deep questions. God spends two chapters answering with more questions. And it's really kind of fascinating. Job 38, verse 4. God says to this man, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? So this is God saying to all of Job's questions, hey, um, let's just set the record straight here for a second. Who should be questioning who? I mean, were you there when I, when I created this whole thing? No. Verse 6, on what were its footing set, or who laid the, its cornerstone of creation, while the morning stars sang together, and all the what? Angels shouted for joy. So the picture we get is that the angels were created before the human beings were. The angels were there singing for joy as they saw God make the universe. So we read about animals, we read about human beings, we read about angels. Flip quickly over to Hebrews. One other point to make about angels. And then relevance might be fast upon us. I want to go back to let him kiss me with the kisses. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1. Now if you miss some of this, if you're just not familiar with it, it's okay. This will come together here in just a little bit. You don't have to, I don't think you have to get all the nuances of things we're saying to get the big point. Verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So the writer is making an argument that Jesus is greater than angels. And in the middle of that, he calls them ministering spirits. Now, a spirit, it says in John 4 that God is a spirit. A spirit is a center of consciousness and personality that doesn't have a body. Okay? An animal is a physical being that doesn't have a spiritual awareness. A human being has both a body and a spiritual awareness and is therefore unique in all of creation. Go to Genesis, back to Genesis chapter 2. So, we reflect in Genesis 1 on animals. None of them ever write, God, you are so big, how are you mindful of us? Right? There's no spiritual awareness in animals. Then you get to the Psalms and you realize, oh, there's this other class of being, beings, angels. And angels, they're spirits, which means they don't have bodies. Now, evidently, they can manifest themselves bodily, but their bodies aren't essential to being an angel. Human beings stand unique in between the two. Animals have bodies, but no spiritual consciousness. Human angels have spiritual consciousness, but no bodies. 
Human beings have both. I know, it's incredibly profound. So we have bodies like the animals do, and we have spiritual consciousness like the angels do, but in us, the two realms come together in a way that is utterly unique in all of creation. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, if you read this in Hebrew, it's really, really interesting. Because the word for man is Adam, and the word for ground is Adama, which means God calls the man Adam because he was made from the ground. So literally, the man is called dirt because he came from dirt. Okay? And all the ladies said, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Which, by the way, is really interesting because in the Genesis account, God makes man and then says, I can do better. But that's a different story. The writer says, God takes the dust of the ground and breathes into it his breath. Now, the word for breath and the word for spirit are very, very similar words in Hebrew. In other words, the man, the dirt, becomes a spiritual being. So, incredibly profound point. Human beings aren't animals, nor are we angels. Animals are physical without spiritual consciousness. Angels are spiritual consciousness without any physical. Human beings are the blending of both. Our culture tells us that sexually we're all animals. We just are in heat just the way they are. I was, reading, I was reading this week article after article in the mainstream media simply saying monogamy is not biological. So the, the name of the article is Why Men Cheat. And I'm not even kidding. The argument was because they were biologically wired to cheat. And it is unreasonable to expect them to be chaste or faithful. Because evolution did not design us that way. Okay. I wonder if they married somebody who lives like that. I mean, that's all fine in theory until you give your heart to somebody. Right? I mean, article after article. What spring break? <laughs> what spring break? The kids are just going to do it. It's your time to experiment. Take risks. Check it out. Hook up. I mean, think about that image. Hook up. Right? Because it's just your body. It's just your biology. You are nothing more than an animal. The kids are going to do it, so just give them condoms. Right? I mean, isn't that the argument? And sitting behind that argument is that you are nothing more than biology. It is unreasonable and, in fact, harmful to ask you not to live out your sexual desires. So the Christian ethic is not only irrelevant, not only antiquated, but it is hurtful when sexual self-expression is the ideal. And why is it the ideal? Because we live at the mercy of our urges. God made me this way. I can't help it. It's his fault. Right? 
So when the scripture says we are not animals, it's saying that we don't live at the mercy of our urges or we don't have to. But if the culture screams your animals, the church screams your angels. Let's pretend like nobody has desires. Let's pretend like nobody has urges. Let's pretend like nobody is walking around wondering all of these deep questions, right? And I want you to see that both impulses are equally destructive. The impulse that simply says to you, listen, you are a slave to your biology, you can't help it, go for it. That will destroy you if you live it. But so will the idea that all you are as a church person or a Christian is a disembodied consciousness and anything that's true of your body is dirty, naughty, and bad, that flatly contradicts the Genesis account we just read. Bodies are good. Being created is good. Being made male and female is good. First command in the Bible, be fruitful and multiply. Have you ever thought of the fact that God could have allowed that to happen by planting a garden or something? Right? We could just raise babies in, like, dirt. (laughs) Right? Like crops. (laughs) But what did he do? He gave us pieces of flesh dedicated almost exclusively to pleasure. Of all the ways to get us to reproduce, he made it fun. No laughing in the front row. (laughs) Now here's the point for tonight. The tension for every single person in this room is to not live enslaved to your desires, but to not live pretending you don't have any. To live as being fully human. You have a body. You have wants. You have needs. You have desires. Following Jesus isn't pretending that you don't. Our world will tell you, your biology is your destiny. Your urges are your destiny. And we just simply say, no, that's that's too low a view of what a human being is. We're different from animals, and we're different from angels. We are where the spiritual and the physical meet. Therefore, sex is a very spiritual issue. Why? Because it's physical. Physicality is a spiritual issue. Why? Because we're where the two realms meet. Are you following me on this line of thinking? See, I would have killed for somebody to tell me that. Hey, 13-year-old, it's okay It's okay. It's okay to wake up and wonder what in the world has happened to me over the last night. What happened? Right? It's okay. You don't have to be embarrassed. Right? It's nobody told me that. So I instantly went to shame. This was somehow bad. This was somehow naughty. Nobody told me that when all of a sudden girls went from ooh to ooh. That that was okay. Nobody told me that. Nobody told me that. When all of a sudden you realized touching yourself 
in certain parts felt differently than touching your arm or your leg. Nobody told me that that was kind of a universal sort of thing. Right? So the problem with our world is we just say, you're animals. Good luck. Be safe. Don't hurt each other. Right? That is the sexual ethic of our world. Self-express as long as you don't hurt anybody. But what's the sexual ethic of our church? Well, godly men don't ever find other women attractive than their spouse. Godly women would never be unhappy with their sex lives. Godly young ladies would never want to have sex with a boy. And godly young men would never want to have sex with a girl. Meanwhile, our godly young men and women are going, my hormones are raging and you're giving me nothing. So we start with a very obvious point that the Bible says attraction is good. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. (laughs) We don't even know how to handle this. I mean, this is so tame compared to what's coming. (laughs) And we don't know how to handle it. It just feels weird to have a conversation like this in church. I have emails from people saying, hey, this subject doesn't belong in church. And I just go, well, if you want to sacrifice your kids and grandkids for the sake of your tradition, you go ahead. I'm not gonna. Because God never says that. He says, it is good. Is it fallen? Oh, we all know that. No one has to convince us that it's fallen. In fact, we have to be convinced that it's good. So, there are scriptures in the New Testament that speak to our propensity to be like animals. Go to 1 Corinthians We're not the first folks to deal with these issues. First Corinthians chapter six. Now, this is a church a man named Paul planted, and they're a little bit crazy. (laughs) And they they have they have all of these sort of slogans that they use to justify their behavior. And so Paul is going to quote their slogan and then refute it. Quote their slogan and then refute it. So verse 12, in quotes, it says, I have the right to do anything. So that's something the church is saying. Paul responds, but not everything is beneficial. He quotes them again. I have the right to do anything. But Paul says, Okay, but don't be mastered by anything then. You say, Paul says, food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. Now, this is a slogan that people would say about acting out sexually. In the first century, I know this will shock you, there was a huge double standard. Women were expected to be virgins when they were married and remain pure and monogamous once they were married. Virgins before, you know, fidelity after. The dudes, it was expected that you would have mistresses. And it was expected that you would engage in prostitution. It was expected that you'd go to temple and engage in temple prostitution. And one of the ways they would say this is they had the slogan, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Meaning, in the same way that hunger is just a natural physical appetite, is it wrong to eat, they would say? If that's not wrong, then it's not wrong 
to have sex. So it's the animal worldview, right? Ah, oh, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Absolutely. It's just a way of saying, listen, God made us with desires, or we were made with desires, and there are objects of fulfillment for those desires. What could be wrong? If eating when you're hungry isn't bad, then how can having sex when you're hungry in that way be wrong? That was the argument. So Paul responds to them. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual morality. We'll talk about this, but for the Lord and the Lord for his body. The Lord for the body. Do you not know, verse 15, that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that the, he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? In other words, Paul says, you were made for more than just the physical expression of your biology. The animal worldview says food for the stomach, stomach for food. Paul says... No, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. There's something else that sits above your urges. Go, if you would, to Ephesians. Flip over a couple pages. Now, are you guys out there? I hope there are some questions being texted in. So the New Testament writers continually assume that we are more than animals. So Paul will say something in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. The, the godless is what he's saying there. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with greed for more. The idea was, listen, he's writing to a church. Some of you actually live that way. You'd become futile in your thinking, hardened in your heart, desensitized to impurity, and all you did was indulge. But that, however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. In other words, there's an old way that you used to live that was the animal worldview, but now there's something new. And he goes on to explain a little bit about what that is. So I want you to see that on the one hand, the Scriptures in the New Testament say, listen, you're not animals. There's something bigger there. But notice... The assumption is we're not angels either. Flip over to 1 Timothy. Flip over a couple books to the right. First Timothy something. Four. Now, Stick with me on this point. This one's kind of a convoluted one, and maybe you're thinking the whole thing's been convoluted, in which case you wouldn't be alone. But because of our propensity to live like animals, some early followers of Jesus thought, well, then you've, you, let's just get rid of desires altogether. So they forbade people from marrying 
They ordered them to abstain from certain foods. They had a teaching that said, listen, your soul is good, but your body's evil. So anything that's the fulfillment of bodily desire is bad. And Paul, he goes after this worldview quite a bit. He says, chapter 4, verse 1, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That's a pretty strong statement. (laughs) Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. What has gotten Paul so fired up? What sort of false teaching is he dealing with? They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is straight out of Genesis 1. And it's to be received with thanksgiving in the Word. Now, a 12-year-old girl wakes up. She realizes... Her body's changing. Boys are starting to pay attention to her differently. And she's noticing them differently. She looks out at the world and sees Miley Cyrus and Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton. And she sees sort of, not role models, but people that are, they get a lot of attention in our world. And they notice that to receive a lot of attention in our world, you act in a certain way and you dress in a certain way. And there are things that guys just kind of like. And suppose she has parents who don't tell her anything about what is happening. What conclusions will she draw from our world? Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, right? Right? Our world just simply says, this is basic biology, and there's nothing wrong with biology. So, she'll assume that to receive affection and attention, she must dress and act, talk and initiate in a certain way. She'll be terribly confused by it all. Suppose that same girl's raised in a church, and suppose the church doesn't say anything to her. She has all these questions, but she never feels safe enough to raise her hand and go, what in the world is happening? And she sees in her youth group the same sort of thing that happens at her school. The really cute and popular girls get all the attention. The ones that aren't so attractive don't, and so she feels like she has to compete by dressing and acting a certain way. See, the one... Situation just says we're animals. But equally damaging is the church's view that says, yeah, we're just angels. We don't talk about desires. We don't talk about bodies changing. We don't talk about attraction or lust. We don't talk about sexuality. Do you see how both are crippling to young people? To be fully human means we go through life and say, you know what? I actually have bodily desires. I have preferences. I have wants. I'm attracted to people. I desire release. I mean, all of those things are true. And if the church doesn't tell us otherwise, we're either going to hear it's dirty, naughty, and bad to be that way, or we're going to hear, dude, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Go for it. 
The challenge for us is to be fully human. To admit all of that desire stuff is real and true. And to not be ruled by it. I know, because I have been there, that there are many of us who are engaging in things that we would kill to stop, but we can't. And what's our world going to say? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, baby. Right? Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. We believe the scriptures present a third option. To be fully human. So, and again, I, I feel like I have to pull my punches, but I'm not going to. So, just know. I grew up, and I was engaging in pornography just all the time. That was how I woke up to sexuality. Then the internet happened. And now, you didn't need to go find your dad's stash, your uncle's stash. Now you just click. I don't know how some of you do it. For me, we had the dial-up AOL modem. So it took about 19 hours, but it was still available. And the whole time, I never heard anything that said, there's a difference between the inherent good of something and the abuse of it. The inherent good is that you're a sexual creature, Mike, and it's okay to have sexual desires. It is okay to find some women attractive and some women not attractive. It is okay when you're dating to want to be intimate with those people because God wired you that way. It's okay to desire. No one ever told me that. So I went from one extreme to the other. I'd indulge and then repent. I'd indulge and then repent. I'd indulge and then repent. I would indulge anyone else with me on this. Right? Rules don't work when it comes to reordering desire. The Bible offers something far more radical than rules. It offers grace. And if you really get that, it's a whole different ballgame. So, the Song of Songs opens with, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. (laughs) That is one of many images. I think the predominant question for the people of God is this. How do we reconcile being spiritual beings and being sexual beings all at the same time? Because it feels like they're irreconcilable. Song of Songs speaks to this. Go ahead and fire up the iPad. These are different images that we'll look at later. She says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Boy, that sounds a little like stuff. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee. That would be all night long. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. (laughs) 
sweating more than normal. He gets a couple of good lines in here. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. How would you know that? At one point, she says this, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I think she's asking to go on a date, personally. (laughs) Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes, and oh my goodness, mandrakes. We'll talk about mandrakes. (laughs) The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my love. Not once in the book is she condemned as sinful. Not once in the book is any qualification given except this couple we find out gets married somewhere in the midst of this. Is it possible to be spiritual and sexual? You bet. Is it possible to have desires and not be ruled by them? You bet. But it starts, men and women, look at me, it starts with first recognizing you are not an animal. You are made in the image of God. You are utterly unique of infinite worth and utterly worth dying for. Do you understand me? You matter. You are more than your body. Your sexuality is bigger than your reproductive parts. It is an absolutely important issue to become fundamentally clear on. Sexuality is an incredibly spiritual issue. And you are more than your biology. And you are filled with desires. You are filled with them. Don't pretend like you're not. We're not going to pretend like we're not. We're not going to pretend that married couples wrestle with, okay, well, how does this work out in a marriage? We're not going to buy the lie that says, hey, guys, once you get married, all you do is have sex. Because that ain't true, unfortunately. <laughs> my wife and I filled out, I'm, I kid you not, my wife and I filled out a premarital questionnaire. This is why I believe that premarital counseling needs an overhaul. I, we filled out a premarital questionnaire. The question was, how many times a week would you like to have sex? I am not even exaggerating. I wrote 15. <laughs> Twice a day, three times on the Sabbath. My wife put two. And I'll let you guess who was right. I mean, we have three kids, so you know we've had sex three times. Minimally, you got, you know. But here's the thing. There are lies our culture tells you and there are lies the church tells you. 
And we want to confront both. If you are here and you are single and you were desperate to be in a relationship, we're not going to sit here and say, hey, God's will for you is to find a mate as soon as possible and go. Your singleness has value. If you're here and you're married and you're miserable, we're not going to sit here and say, you know what? You're the only person. You just got to suck it up. We're going to say, you know what? There are seasons in marriage because of what marriage turns out to be. It's not surprising that two sinful people find places in their marriage where they go, oh, oh, why did we do this? But no one told me. No one told me. No one told me you actually had to be disciplined. And that if you can't control yourself before you get married, you'll have a hard time controlling yourself after. And I had friends who wrestled with same-sex attraction. A buddy of mine never chose it. Never chose it. Never chose it. But it was as strong towards men as my desire was for women. He couldn't go to the church. He had nothing to say. He prayed every day that God would take it away. And God didn't. What do you do with that? We are going to do our best to avoid both extremes. It is possible to not be enslaved to your physical urges but it's impossible to deny we have them. The goal is to be fully human. And as we walk together, you will be surprised by what that turns out to look like. Joy, let's do some questions. Why isn't sex good when you're a teenager? Well, I'm sure it is. I mean, I hit puberty. Why are you guys all leaving? This is the best part. I had puberty at 11 or 12, and I got married at 29. By my count, that is a long time. And in Bible days, they were getting married at 12, 13, 14 years old. Now, we're going to talk about sexuality and being a teenager. But let's all agree... That the wrong answer is, hey, just pretend like you don't have those desires. And the wrong answer is, hey, just don't ask those questions. Or the wrong answer is, hey, the kids are going to do it, so just make sure they do it safely. There's a better answer we can give. But it's more than thou shalt not. See, before there is a thou shalt not, there is a big thou shalt. And that's what we want to look at first. Next question. Great question. We're going to actually talk about that. What is okay sexually inside of marriage? Boy, that's a good question. And we'll talk about this. Minimally, Paul seems to say, fidelity, mutuality, right? He says this really radical thing in 1 Corinthians. Wives existed for their husbands in the first century. But Paul says, hey, by the way, Guys, your husband's no longer your own, it's your wives. And wives, your body's not your own, it's your husband's. Don't deprive each other of sex unless it's for prayer, lest you fall into temptation. Now, my wife will be horrified that I will tell you this. 
So let's all agree we didn't have this conversation. Okay? I have asked my wife, well, should I? Some of you are going to be offended. All right, send every email to David Fletcher, david.fletcher at evfreefullerton.com. Okay, so, oh, should I? So, so I've asked my wife if she would be interested in doing this sort of provocative, ah, uh, I can't say it, um, kind of thing. And, 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 huh? Jackie, no, Jackie's saying no. All right, it was a lap dance. And, and so I said, honey, she said, what do you want for your birthday? I said, how about you in lingerie? And, and, you know, just, and, and you know what she said? She said, I, I would feel really weird doing that. I'd feel really weird doing that. Now, was it wrong for me to ask? No, I don't think so. <laughs> what would have been sinful would have been to manipulate, to guilt, to punish her. Because mutuality matters. I, she doesn't exist for me. I exist for her in a healthy sexual marriage relationship that took me years to figure out. Every no is not a personal rejection. And I can't manipulate her, shame her or guilt her for not wanting to do more or more often. So, it's wrong if he or she says no. It's wrong. I don't think there are many boundaries. I mean, I think there are health boundaries and common sense boundaries. And, you know, people will sometimes ask, hey, is it okay to use porn as a married couple? No, you are damaging your marriage beyond repair. If she or he isn't enough to excite you, then may I suggest starving your eyes and mind of every other stimuli and pray to Almighty God that he would restore your desire for the wife or husband of your youth, and it will come back. So, their common sense, their safety, but I believe fidelity and mutuality are the two biggest commands given to marital sexuality. Great question. We'll talk more about this. Lap dance. I found out that I am gay. I also... I'm a believer of God and want to follow Him. What do I do from here? I feel lost and broken. What would you do? First of all, I am utterly thrilled you would ask. And I'm thrilled that you are here. Secondly, this, this question cannot be answered in a 30-second soundbite. I want, and some of you will disagree with this, but I want to apologize to you for how the church has treated the gay community. Because I personally believe, and you may say, nope, the gay community's got an agenda, the gay community's taken over our country. I don't care. Have we loved them the way Jesus loves them? And the answer is no. End of story. 
So let me say this. My personal belief is that the church lies to the gay community by saying that homosexuality is a sin that is worse than any other sin. That is not true. If you want to take the Bible at its word, homosexuality is listed next to gossip and greed. Okay? Well, if we're going to apply that verse, then let's apply that verse, shall we? We let gossipers show up. We let greedy people show up. We give them permission to be in process. You've got permission to. We also recognize this is a tremendously complex issue. We think the church lies to you by saying, A, it's worse than any other thing, or B, that following Jesus will turn you automatically into a heterosexual. I have some friends who have experienced such transformation, not from reparative therapy, but because God, they desired men, and then they desired women. And I also have friends who've prayed for years that God would take the desires away, and they haven't. So I've learned to say, listen, following Jesus doesn't mean you're automatically going to find women attractive the day after you pray to Jesus. But I also believe the homosexual community lies to you too by telling you that your desires are your destiny. I just don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe that's true of alcoholics. I don't believe that's true of gluttons. I don't believe that's true of greedy people. I just don't believe it. We are far more than just our biology. And I also believe they lie to you by telling you your sexual orientation is the most important thing about you. It is not. The most important thing about you is you were made in the image of a creator God who relentlessly pursues you in a love relationship. So where do you go from here? How about this? Come back. Just come back next week. Just come back and listen and see See if this doesn't get safer and safer and safer for you to not just write a question, but to say, you know, that was me. What we're not going to do is we're not going (laughs) to, well, we're not going to guilt and shame you. As one fellow struggler to another, welcome to the Jesus Club. We believe he is real and is at work, and you are welcome. Next question. Sex before marriage is immoral. Does that include all sexual activity? In today's culture, it isn't seen as wrong to give your boyfriend a blowjob or finger your girlfriend, but according to Scripture, is that considered to be sexual immorality? That's definitely from an old person. Uh, There's no question that somebody over 50 wrote that one. Some of you are so horrified right now, I know. (laughs) Our kids are learning whether or not we say anything to them. These are the real questions they have. That is a question that is deserving of more than a 30-second response also. Nowhere in the Scriptures does it say, hey, sex is only genital intercourse. Nowhere. It says the whole thing is sex. The whole thing was meant to fit together. There aren't supposed to be these artificial lines all over the place. I mean, in the scriptures, 
If you had oral sex with somebody who wasn't your spouse, was that considered harmless? No. You committed adultery. Why? Because that level of intimacy. See, this is where the hook and unhook culture gets us all into trouble. We just think, okay, as long as I'm technically cool, that whole area is harmless. That's not true. And there are a bunch of reasons for that, and I can't do them justice. And the reason I just don't want to give you a big old thou shalt not is because this is all in context. The worst thing we do with sexuality is rip it out of the great biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So I'm not going to give you a big thou shalt not yet. Would you trust me enough to come back and let's work through this book together and then ask the question and see what you think? Next. What are single people supposed to do about their sexual desires? Well, the same thing married people do with their sexual desires, right? I want to have sex with my wife more than she wants to have sex with me. Does that shock anybody? (laughs) So even in marriage where there's an outlet, and nobody told me this, nobody told me this. I just thought if I can get to marriage, it's awesome. That's all we do. 15 times a week. (laughs) What an idiot. What an idiot. My goodness, and she still married me. I mean, that's just crazy. What was the question? Oh, singleness. Oh, okay. Now, I'm sick of saying we're going to talk about this, but we're going to talk about this. All right? I want you to know that you can't say, oh, married people are different. Because if you don't learn how to handle sexual desire when you're single, if you get married, you won't know how to handle it when you're married. Lust doesn't go away. I just thought, oh, no, 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 it'll be good. I won't struggle with pornography anymore. It'll be good. I'll just get married. And There isn't a character switch that is flipped when you say, I do. You're still the same scoundrel you brought into the thing the morning after. And so what do you do with sexual desire? You learn that it's okay to have it and that it doesn't have to rule you. Okay, well, what about masturbation? We're going to talk about that, but not tonight. (laughs) Next. How can I help my husband who is addicted to porn? It depends if your husband wants help. The most horrifying thing I had to do when I was first married was go to my wife and say, Honey, I I looked at something that I should not have looked at. It has been a pattern in my life. And for her to ask the following question, Are you disappointed in me? And for me to try to say, It has nothing to do with you. And for her not to understand. It wasn't until I was at the end of my rope and I was willing. Now, this is just me, okay? Some people, you need actual therapy. You need to join a sexual recovery group. We we need to pray and go to war using spiritual disciplines. I mean, there's a whole wide range. But unless your husband actually wants to get better, there's nothing you can do. And so I will ask guys. Guys will come up and say, yeah, I'm struggling with porn. 
And I'll say, okay, well, how, how do you access it? Oh, my computer. Well, where's your computer? It's right next to my bed. Oh, that's awesome. I said, well, get rid of your computer. I can't. Then you're not, you, know, you don't want to get healthy. My wife, Safari is blocked out on my phone. I have accountability software on every computer. I can't go to any website without it going to several gentlemen who will say, hey, what was this Google search? Was this research for sex, love, and God? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) I live ruthlessly accountable. Not because I'm some raging pornographer, but because I could be. So how do you help him? If he is willing to ask for help, that's the first thing. But know this, know this, it's less about you than it is about him. If we can pray for you, whoever you are, would you let us do that tonight? We're going to have some folks up front after we're done. We'd love to pray for that. Because that's a big deal. That is a slavery that is brutal. So you have a tough balance. On the one hand, you can't say, hey, it's okay, guys do this, and totally normalize it. But on the other hand, if all you do is shame and guilt, he just will stop telling you. One last question. I saw someone look at their phone. Totally unacceptable. (laughs) Oh, what a good question. How do you change your mindset after your marriage that sex is okay? Here is the greatest problem with the angel syndrome. I cannot tell you, I am shocked by this. The number of couples that will come and talk to me and say, we know it's okay now, but one of us can't enjoy it. Because all they heard, don't, 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 dirty, naughty, bad, dirty, naughty, bad, dirty, naughty, bad. And then they get married and hey, it's awesome. And they just can't flip that switch. That is why it is so unbelievably critical that the primitive, the primal conversations they first have are with their faith community and their parents. Hey, this is just normal stuff. Someday I will tell you about the conversation Big Nate, who is, was nine at the time and I had about this. It was the funniest thing that ended with him saying, Dad, I really wish you could just high five in order to make babies. I mean, I didn't give him the full thing, but he was asking all sorts of really interesting questions. I didn't tell him everything, but I, I told him enough for him. To, he actually had prayers that night. He actually prayed, God, would you change the way babies are made so I don't have to do this? I know. But you know what was so powerful about the conversation? There was not one awkward moment. We laughed. I would high-five mom in front of him. (laughs) But what happened? See, what happened? I want him to know that it's a good thing. Paul distinguishes between the inherent goodness of something and its abuse, and I want him to know it is a great thing. It is a great thing. So that when he gets married, you don't have to flip the switch. Now, if you're here, you're married, and you're struggling, then we've got help for you. We've got help for you. 
the worst thing you can feel is like you're alone, like you're the only person that's ever wrestled with this issue. Nope, you're not. It's surprising how much carnage the angel syndrome has wrecked in Christian marriages. Last question, then we're done. Some of you have been done for half an hour. Is that it? Because I don't want to look at that guy for much longer. (laughs) But what about when Paul in Romans 7.19 states, for I do not do the good I want, but I do the very evil I do not want. I feel like it's impossible to be stronger than my bodily desires. All it takes is a second of weakness and my body seems to take over. Anyone relate to that? Yep. Absolutely. We believe that you don't have to be enslaved to your desires. The natural question is, well, I am enslaved to my desires. How do I get out of that? So we're going to talk a lot about the reordering of desire. Okay, I was diagnosed real quick, uh, with depression, clinical depression and anxiety several years ago. Um, and uh, uh, after four years of resistance, um, a doctor said, you just got to try medication, dork, because it wasn't getting any better. And I said, yeah, but that's a lack of faith and blah, blah, blah. So I tried medication. It worked. Gained 50 pounds. <laughs> Do I look like I need to gain 50 pounds to you? <laughs> So I was, I, it's the, it was the job of the hut phase for years truly. Seriously. Oh, it was awful. 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 I was so embarrassed. And I was in a very public role. And I would just walk around feel so embarrassed about my body. And I didn't know at the time that the medication actually not only causes you to gain weight, but it makes it hard to lose it. And a buddy of mine said something once that I thought was really, really powerful because I was trying every diet in the book. Atkins diet, or I called it Fatkins myself. <laughs> it was my, by far my favorite one. Oh, I can eat steak and eggs and cheese, I'm in. But a friend of mine said, listen, the issue isn't dieting. The issue is learning to hunger for better food. And that takes a long time. And I thought, with sexuality, it's the same kind of thing. You need to know If you're a follower of this Jesus, you're not condemned for your repeated failure. But what we want to do over this series is we are going to prayerfully expose you to better food so that at some point, Jesus will be bigger than your desires. Your desire for good will outweigh your desire for bad. And when that happens, see, at some point, I just quit finding porn attractive. I don't know when it was. I wish there was some magic formula. But at some point... I wanted to live without it more than I wanted to indulge in it. And it wasn't a set of rules that did it, although the rules helped keep it away. All the rules did was give God the opportunity to change my heart, and I believe that's what He will do with you. But you first have to combat the lie that you're at the mercy of your desires. It may feel that way now, but it won't always be true. All right, so here's what I want you to do. An hour and a half you guys have put up with me. I'm sure I've offended a bunch of you. I'm so sorry. David Fletcher at evfreefullerton.com. <laughs> Here's the deal. I have not been more excited and nervous about a conversation uh, than I have been about this one. 
Our community, our world needs this conversation. I feel totally inadequate to do it. I feel like a repeated failure. I feel like a screw up. I just don't feel equipped for the task. And yet, we believe the scriptures speak. And that however many of us turn out to listen to a 3,000 year old love poem, because we need an authoritative voice. So close your eyes for a moment. Don't know why you're here tonight. Don't know what you're thinking or what you're wrestling with. But would you, even if you're not Christian, would you take a moment and would you ask God to open you up to this conversation? Would you take a moment in quiet and would you just say, God, here is my sexuality. It's dead and it's dormant. It's alive and it's kicking. It's warped and I feel like it rules me. However it is, would you bring your real self before God? And would you invite God to speak to you? Not Mike, not the church, not Christianity, but God himself. Some of you are so heartbroken. Some of you are so lonely. Some of you feel so dirty. All I know is that when Jesus would touch people, he would make them clean. And would you just ask God to lower your defenses and to open yourself up to his grace and his voice and his truth. If you're here and you're not particularly religious, so glad you're here. This is the beginning of a very long and I hope fruitful conversation. I want to pray over you. And then here's the thing. We have a, a team, we're just going to call it a care team. These are men and women who are unbelievably awesome. And these are folks who are trained to listen, to pray, and to have resources for you. If you are here and something has been stirred up and you need help, do not walk out of here. Please, well, I beg you, please. You've been carrying this stuff alone for far too long. Please, please come and talk to us. Please, please. You were never meant to carry this stuff by yourself, never. Please, please. Lord God, by the power of the name of this Jesus, have mercy on us. Holy Spirit, come. Unnumb the numb places. 
soften the hard places, bring light to the dark places, bring truth to the lies, and bring freedom to the captives. Have mercy on us. Would you draw near to the brokenhearted? Would you draw near to those who feel so very far away? Would you draw near to those who feel like they're damaged goods? Would you draw near to the married couples who've let distance creep in? Would you draw near to the ladies who feel like they're single because they're ugly and they're not lovely? Draw near to the abuse victims and draw near to the abusers. Draw near to the addicts. Draw near to those who see no way out the trap of desire. Draw near to parents who need to talk to children. Draw near to children who need to forgive parents. Draw near to a church that just wants to be honest. Amen and amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine His face upon you. May the Lord lift up His countenance to you and give you peace. Care team, come on up front. May you go in the grace and the truth of Jesus. Amen.